Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. This episode of Changes is supported by Delicious Ways to Feel Better, a podcast hosted by Ella and Matthew Mills, who are the founders of Deliciously Ella. It's a brilliant podcast with informative, honest conversations around mental and physical health from leading experts. From gut health to anxiety, imposter syndrome to body image, Delicious Ways to Feel Better is helping us all cope through the uncertainties of life. Available wherever you get your podcasts. Hello everyone, I am Annie McManus. Welcome to the final episode of Series 3 of Changes. So, this series begun on February 8th and it's felt like a very, very long three months. For me, anyway. Don't know how it's been for you, but yeah, it's felt long. In that time, here in the UK, we have had the vaccination rollout really really take effect and we have started to allow ourselves a kind of glint of optimism you know that feeling of there being an end to all of this we've also had the seasonal change you know just that huge effect that a longer evening and warmth in the sun and blossom on the trees has on our psyche um i don't know about you but i've really just welcomed that and realized how much i've needed that as well after what's felt like a very long winter Personally, I've started talking about this book that I've written loads more. That's coming out next month, Mother Mother, dropping at the end of May. It's been a year and a half wait from knowing that the book was going to be published to actually having it come out. And it's felt like a very long time. So the fact that it's becoming real now and becoming something I'm talking about more and more is really exciting. And then, of course, there's been this series of changes. We started off with Khalees. We heard from Travis Alabanza, a trans performance artist and playwright. Then we spoke to Larch Maxi, the HS2 activist. We spoke to him from a tunnel under Euston Station where he was protesting. That was such a charged and emotional conversation. Uh, we spoke to one of the world's most followed American civil rights activist, Sean King. We spoke to Ariel Bruce about profoundly changing people's lives by reuniting families all over the world through her work in tracing. We also brought you big talked about episodes from Billy Piper and Katie Price, who were both very candid and honest about the wild change they've gone through in their lives. And of course, last week, we brought you Stephen Taylor, Dr. Stephen Taylor, who explained the psychology of pandemics. So many fascinating episodes, so many interesting stories of change. If you missed any of them, of course, go back and have a listen. And that's, of course, just this series. There's two more before then as well. Thank you so much for all of your feedback and comments on the series. Shout out to Maddie Amber, who said, I've never been interested in podcasts until I discovered changes. Thanks. Thank you, Maddie. Right. That leads me on to the final guest of this series. Series. We, we're kind of bringing you the most wild and raucous cautionary tale to end this series. My guest is a man called Sean Atwood. He grew up in a small northern English town and has had a life that you only ever really experience in the cinema 
or in a book maybe. It's quite hard to believe what he's gone through, but it's all totally real. He was a stockbroker millionaire in Arizona, and then he ended up becoming a kingpin in drug smuggling. He was an ecstasy smuggler, smuggling up to four million pounds worth of drugs into America. He then got caught by a SWAT team knocking down his door in 2002, faced a 200 year sentence and after a legal battle was sentenced to nine and a half years in America's deadliest prison. After submerging himself in thousands of books in prison, Sean changed his perspective and now works as an author, a speaker and an activist about the war on drugs, sharing his experiences and kind of speaking of issues affecting prisoners' rights and the consequences he faced by getting involved in drugs and crime. As I said, a very serious cautionary tale. This is like nothing you've ever heard before. Before we start, as you would assume, drug abuse is talked about in detail. This episode contains references that some will find disturbing. Please check the show notes for more details if you're worried about if that applies to you. But right now, enter the podcast, Sean Atwood. You are very qualified to be on this podcast in terms of experiencing huge seismic change in your life in every aspect. So if we start when you're a child and I'm talking like, you know, early childhood or kind of teenage, what would you say is the biggest change that impacted you at that age? So I grew up in the industrial northwest in Widnes in between Liverpool and Manchester and I was quite small in my year group, so I used to get bullied and beat up by the rugby players. When I passed my driver's license test, I went up to fill my mom's little red car with petrol. Almost got beat to death by some drunks. They, these four big guys came up to me. I thought it was brave to stand up to them. You know, it was a mistake. They started kicking me, hitting me, knocked me down. All I could do is curl up in the fetal position. One's got an iron bar, smashes me in the face, knocking pieces of my teeth out. That's why I've got these veneers on my front teeth to this day. So that exacerbated my anxiety. Wouldn't go out and dance, wouldn't talk to women, too self-conscious. Hang on, what age were you when this happened, Sean? I just passed my driver's license test. So what, 17? Can't can't remember it exactly. 16 around then, is it? What was going on with these guys? Like, you're just a young kid filling up a car with petrol. Did they rob off you? Didn't rob off me. So, before the rave scene began, there was a lot of young lads just looking for violence. There wasn't cameras out back then. People would just get drunk and have fights. And there was a lot of rivalries between various territories, between the towns and where where you were from in the towns. So these are from a different part of where I was from. And they just started talking shit. So I stood up to them. I think the Rambo movies were out around then. I thought it was brave to stand up to people. Big mistake. So they circled me, knocked me down, kicking me in the head, kicking me in the body. And all I could do is lay there like that. One's got an iron bar, smash in my face. I'm seeing stars, pieces of my teeth fly out. And my body's getting warmer and number. And I couldn't feel the pain anymore. So I thought, great, they must have stopped hitting me opened my eyes and they were still hitting me. I couldn't understand why I couldn't feel the pain, but my body just released so much of whatever it does and I was so warm and numb. And I could feel as if my life is slipping away. I'm like, these guys aren't just beating me up. They're trying to murder me. And I went unconscious, woke up in a pool of blood. They smashed my car windows. I managed to drive home. Parents took me to hospital. Hang on, where was all the help? What help? 
As in, you were at a petrol station. Did no one intervene? Well, we'd moved a bit down the road from the petrol station as they'd been attacking me. Actually, when I woke up, a police car sped past. And I thought, right, perhaps that police car is chasing them or something. But I just wanted to get the hell out of there. I was so embarrassed and so hurt and so traumatised. I just wanted to get the hell out of there. So I just managed to drive off with the car with the windows smashed. Wow. Wow. Yeah. And then my parents took me to hospital, but I got these nice, got these nice American Hollywood style front teeth now from where they, they smashed the bottoms of my teeth off. And what was home life like? Like, tell me about your parents, because obviously you had supportive parents. You had brothers and sisters. What was home life saying? My parents were hippies in the 1960s. Janis Joplin fans, Beatles, Rolling Stones, smoked weed, left leaning, supported the miners strike. And I got a sister who's five years younger than me. I teased her the crap out of her when she was a kid. You know, she snitched me out when mum got home from work. Mum would get the shoe out, throw it at me. But <laughs> I'm just saying that in a humorous way. I come from a completely loving home. Yeah. They supported further education. I was the first from family to go to university. Did a business studies degree at Liverpool. And that um, set me off on the path of the business world. So you get badly, badly assaulted, beaten up as a kind of mid-teen. How did that affect the rest of your schooling, like before you got to uni? Do you remember that period after then and how it manifested? I preferred just staying in the house doing my studies. I didn't want to go and be around people. Didn't want to go nightclubs and dance. Didn't talk to women. But then the rave scene began. And a mate out of economics class was like, come and check this out. Went to this dodgy club on Oldham Road called the Thunderdome. Now, I'd seen all these ravers on the news. And where is this? Is this in Liverpool? Manchester. Manchester, excuse me. Yeah, sorry. yeah. So I'd seen all these ravers on the news. Young people breaking into warehouses, airplane hangers, wearing all these crazy coloured clothing, just smiling. Like this chemical glazed smile. And I'm thinking, wow, what is going on in this country? So my mate's like, come and check it out. Get to the Thunderdome. It's this burr square room. People just stood around, looking at the dance floor as if expecting an elephant to materialise. I'm like, this this is pretty boring. What's going on here? So my mate's like, hey, don't worry, it's going to start to fill up. We need to hook up. So he goes over to some sulphur skinheads with the chains and the tattoos. And he's like, we need some Billy Wears and some uh, for, for ecstasy pills. Oh, White Doves. I think it was White Doves back then. So, I've never been in a drug deal before. All I know about drug deals is what I've seen on Miami Vice, and they never end very well. So I'm, like, looking around the room, thinking, oh, we're going to get ripped off, we're going to get undercover cops going to grab us. So my mate's like, go in the, let's go in the toilets. About 30, 40 minutes later, my mate's eyes just, like, light up. And he's like, come and dance. But I couldn't feel it. He goes off and dances. I'm like, no, this isn't happening. My knees just suddenly buckled and I just started feeling this intense warmth and all I could do was sit down on the floor and all these people in the baggy jeans are going past me and looking down, smiling at me and my head is starting to melt and my neck is all the goosebumps. And then he comes up and he's like, come on, let's dance. Recognises my smile. I'm looking around and everyone, the people like, there's this rock, the whole room's like rocking in this wave. I started copying the moves of the people around me and I did not want to stop dancing I did not even want to go and take a pee 
I never wanted the party to end and raving became my religion after that. How did it change you as a person? I just lived to party on the weekends, but I always had this studious side to me. So even as I was sitting my finals, there was all these beeps and beats going off in my head as I was doing my final exams. And I left in 91 to Arizona. So we're talking about 1988 to 1991, Summer of Love, all those massive raves, Carl Cox, Sasha with the headliners on most of them. And it had such an impact on me. Even though I had this business side to me, my goal was to make a million by the time I was 30 in the stock market, which I did. But I also made another goal. When I make that money, I'm going to transfer this Manchester Liverpool rave scene over to the Sonoran Desert in Arizona. And I I ended up doing that as well. So you going from being an anxious kid who's wanted to stay indoors, not wanting to go out for a good reason, to then being this completely like starry-eyed, like ecstasy lover. <laughs> did you feel like the drugs kind of afforded you a different way of living? Like, did you feel like you were more popular? Like, did they affect you in that way as well? Your social behaviour? I work in drugs education now with young people. Yeah. It yeah. starts out glitz, glamour, fun. The first time you take the drugs... The highs are the most intense, but you're always chasing those early highs. And over time, the side effects creep in, which we can get to. But in the beginning, I felt like I was invincible. The drugs was telling me, you're living like a character out of a movie. You know, my competition in the XC market was Sammy the Bull Gravano's crew. He was a mafia hitman for the Gambino crime family. He'd murdered almost two dozen people. We were joking that we were above the law. The peak of it, I was living in a million dollar house in a gated, guarded community. Paul McCartney's house was miles uh, down that mountain range. It was unreal. And looking back now, it's like it was it was surreal. It's like it, it was a dream. I am interested in that. I mean, because it's such an intensive time in your life and so much drama and danger. And you lived on the edge completely. And now you've had a long period of just relative normality compared to what you went through. What brought you to America and why Arizona? Okay, so as a teen, I would visit my aunts. And when the plane comes into land, Sky Harbor Airport, you look down and you see all the houses. Half of them have got swimming pools in their backyards. As soon as they heard the English accent, roll the red carpet out. I'm thinking, right, I want some of this when I finish university. So you finished uni and then went straight there? I did a year out, went Glastonbury Festival, had to check that out. Then I went to America with just my student credit cards, didn't have a work visa, nothing. And what happened next? Got there and I applied to be a stockbroker. I sent my resume off to about 50 places, got accepted right away. But if you've seen The Wolf of Wall Street, it was just like that. I ended up in a penny Mm. stock outfit. So we're all in these quads And they bring these guys in to do these power sales meetings. And they're like military-style drill instructors. They're like, you are only as big as your numbers are on this board for the month. We had to have mirrors on our desks. Smiling brokers make the most money. Smile and dial. We had to have 24-foot curly cords on our phones. Pacing brokers make the most money. (laughs) If you are taking lunch breaks... 
Other brokers are calling your clients, speaking to your wives, speaking to your girlfriends. Other brokers oh are calling God. your clients. Yeah, it was, it was insane. But it, it brought me in. It was a baptism of fire. First two years, I was living off cheese on toast and bananas, about to run out of money on my student credit cards because it was commission only and I wasn't much good at it. Five years yeah. in, top guy in the office, grossing half a million a year. And we started to throw house parties at that point. And then that's where I did my first experiment of going out and buying a thousand ecstasy pills from LA. And it went in one weekend. And that's when I made the fateful decision to quit the stock market and go full time into the party scene. I'm so interested in this decision. So this <laughs> slide, I'm so fascinated in this bit because on paper, looking at your life, you're this really fun-loving, hedonistic, super smart guy, just making loads of money, like just living life to the full. But you're smart. So surely you know the dangers that come with that. And what, what was in your head when you were buying a thousand pills, knowing what would happen if you were caught? Like, was there any fear there? There must have been awareness of the consequences. So the drug scrambles your decision-making process and tells you you're Mr. Cool Guy. And so this is a caveat. So you were you were off your face for a lot of this. I was off my drugs. face from my high teens till the SWAT team came when I was about 33. Right. Yeah. So this is a tale of two people. My best friend from childhood, wild man, God bless him. He died and his funeral was just before Christmas. Really big guy. He was 28 and a half stone when he died, six foot two. He ends up going to prison for a violent crime in his late teens. And I promise him, when I make a million in America, I'm gonna fly you out and we're gonna get you a job as a wrestler and you're not gonna spend the rest of your life in prison. Because he said he was hearing red dots, he had red dots in his head that were telling him to hurt people. So I flew him out, flew him out to Arizona. I get him a place in Tempe, Arizona, Rancho Marietta, huge apartment complex. And wherever he goes, he just invites in all the local street people, gangbangers, Russian mafia, Mexican mafia, Native American, transsexual, um, mm. sex workers. Just this is eclectic mix of people in his place all day long doing crystal meth, weed, ecstasy. It's nonstop partying. I was just getting about 50 to 100 pills at this point from the local dealers and giving them away for free. Showing off, all ego. The more pills I gave away, the more friends I had. But then I started to realize there's a scarcity thing here. You can only get 50 to 100. People coming all night long now asking us for 50 to 100 pills at a time. Arbitrage, right, find out where they're getting them from. They were getting them from a surfer gangster guy called Sol out of LA. My local supplier, Acid Joey, Another one of my friends who's dead. Most of my male friends from back then, so high risk lifestyles, they're dead. Acid Joey was found dead in his swim pool with all of his clothes on. He was probably on drugs. So he finds out Sol is in West Hollywood, arranges us to buy a thousand. Two car loads of us go out there. There's me, Wildman, Acid Joey, and Sol's not home at the prearranged time. Wild man's getting angry. He's like, I'm going to show him. I'm just going to kick his effing door in when he shows up for keeping us waiting this long. I'm just going to take his pills off him. I'm like, Peter, calm down. If we want to establish a good business relationship with this guy, you can't just go robbing people. So we're waiting and waiting, and he shows up. You've seen that movie Point Break with the surfer gangsters? Yeah. They look just like those characters. So I go in right. on my own. 
I say, look, if I'm not out in 20 minutes, then come in and rescue me. Go in and I say, look, can I try one first? Because I didn't want to get ripped off. He goes, yeah, he gave me a pill. He said, do you want a drink? I said, no, I just want to chew it because I know what good ecstasy tastes like. Should be 100, 125 milligrams of MDMA and clay. I've done so many pills. I knew it's very distinct taste. Gives me a pill. I chew it. It was good. I could tell, even though it hadn't hit me yet. So I handed over the pills. He handed over the pills. Still a bit worried coming out, thinking maybe there's cops, maybe something bad's going to happen. So this was before I had proper protocol to avoid police detection. I'm just starting out. I've got a twin turbo Mazda RX-7. Looks like a spaceship. It's like this translucent blue color. It's got a first seat. So I get in. I've got a radar detector on the dashboard. We're on the big old California freeway. I'm going up to almost 150 miles an hour. Whenever there's a cop speed trap, radar detector's like, beep, 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 beep. Slam on, slow down. And I'm listening to Renaissance by Sasha and Digweed. Yeah. So 40 minutes in, the XE hits me. I've got this first seat. And I'm just melting into the cover. I'm driving along, listening to Sasha and Digweed across the desert between California and Arizona, where there's the windmills and all that stuff and the mountains. And it's just such beautiful scenery. And we get back to Wildman's apartment in Tempe, Arizona. Thousand pills just go in a weekend. That's when I think, right, I can just make money, having fun, don't have to work these long hours anymore, calling 500 numbers a day, cold calling in the office, six o'clock in the morning, sales meeting. I could just make money from the party scene. But that decision changed my life forever. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. I love that image of you in the car. Like it, it feels like I'm I'm kind of watching a film at the moment in terms of like the, the kind of these vivid scenes that are so extreme. So if we were to fast forward in the film of your life to the next bit, to you at your peak in terms of distributing ecstasy, like the most money you were making, the most drugs you were you were moving, like just paint me a picture of that part and then when it started to go left okay it got bigger when operations commenced through mexico so one of my female yeah. smugglers got stopped at sky harbor airport i think she had about five to ten thousand pills in vitamin jars in her luggage they said to her come in the yeah. back room open, open your luggage 
she put the pills on the table. They said, what are they? She said, vitamins. They said, cool, put them back in her luggage and told her to have a nice day. Now, <laughs> I needed to consult an expert in trafficking because yeah. we didn't want to, we wanted to avoid this happening again. So we had a lawyer, a female lawyer, and she said, look, you need to start bringing them in through Mexico. So people would fly from Hermosillo Airport to Mexico City, Air France to Paris, get on the train to Holland and then get the pills in there. This was before 9-11. Don't try this, folks. Keep your day job. So you, you're getting the pills from Holland, but you're bringing them through Mexico and into America from that direction. Yeah, because if you just get, Got it. get on a plane in Holland and come back to America, it's a red flag. So I've invested in beachfront property in Puerto Penasco, Rocky Point. I've got wild men and wild women down there. They've got all the locals paid off. Because if you're running drugs through Mexico, Mexico's divided into plazas and the cartels control the plazas. So if you want to run drugs through a plaza, you have to pay off the local people for that. Otherwise, very dark and dangerous uh, things can happen to you. So we were all good down there, thanks to Wild Man and Wild Woman. And we never got any problems with the locals and nobody got busted bringing them in over the border. We would tr transfer them then into a vehicle like a brand new SUV, University of Arizona sticker on it, diving tanks, tourist bric-a-brac, and someone else would drive them over the border. If you wanted to be really relaxed about it, you could just put pills in pillowcases. Or mm. if you wanted to be more secure, you could put them in computer towers, screwed into computer towers. So how many pills? 40,000 in one shipment was the most we ever did. And they were going for 25, 30 in the clubs. So I had about 200 people working for me. It was structured like a corporation. So I would give like a head of a faction, like 5,000 pills on credit at 10. He breaks them down to his middle people, 15, 20. They sell them to the clubs, 25, 30. So my profit, I'm getting them at like two or three with all the smuggling expenses, two or three dollars. Putting them out at 10, $7 profit, 40,000 pills, quarter million. Wow. So now let's fast forward to the moment where you entered jail. At some point you were caught, people gave your name. I've watched a lot of your other interviews and you were saying that you kind of dominated the scene when it came to distributing ecstasy and then other pe people came in and that's when a lot of the police presence began, right? Yeah, Sammy the Bull Gravano's crew lit the rave scene up when they started coming in. Big guys, jocks, mm. steroid heads. And I'm thinking, who are these guys? So my wife, one of her lesbian lovers, was dating one of those guys. And my mm. wife said, look, they want to meet you. So through my wife's lover, we arranged this meeting. Me and my wife and one of my bodyguards go up to this bar in Tucson called Heart Five. My bodyguard, he's yeah. strapped. I say, look, if they try and kidnap me or pull anything funny, just open up on them. Get me out of there. So we walk in. Now... I mentioned earlier I've got this anxiety, so I was always high when I was doing this stuff. False bravery. I had some GHB and I had some crystal meth and I went in there and there's this massive guy and a shorter guy. The shorter guy says, I'm the Spaniard, pleased to meet you, English Sean. Let's go through to this VIP room. There's people sat around in the VIP room on sofas and stuff and the big guy just goes, everybody, get the F out of here right now. And just clear, completely cleared the room. Yeah. So the Spaniards like, look, we know you're tight with the locals. 
you're doing a lot of business. Why don't you get some of your pills through us? I say, look, I've got a good reputation. I'm getting my stuff straight out of Holland. If ecstasy, if people die, it's very rare, but it can happen. But it's usually because of toxic substances. So we had tested all our pills and nobody ever died from our pills. We would have known right away. So I say to them, you guys are selling these colored pills. God knows what's in them. Big guy jumps up. He's like, who the F are you disrespecting our pills? One call to Sammy the Bull and we can have you taken out to the desert. So that's when I first knew it was getting heavy. Oh, I say to them, it's not each other we need to worry about. It's the cops. Undercover mm. cops in window tinted cars. Demand for ecstasy is, is such, so high we could coexist. But you guys have got to be more on the down low. So it kind of left on a peaceful note. But I was wondering how long the law, the, the peace would last. How long did it last? Well, I told my bodyguard, they said they were working for Sammy DeBall. He said, oh shit, this is going to get heavy. And then right. within months, my top sales guy, Skinner, another crew who said they were working for Sammy DeBall, enticed him to a nightclub in Scottsdale to do a drug deal, took him into the men's room, knocked his teeth out and took off all of his drugs and his money and his gun. So that was when I moved from Phoenix to Tucson, in the house, secure house, secure neighborhood on the mountain there because my uh, the threats to my life were increasing at that point. Right. And how did that affect your mental health at the time? My mental health started to deteriorate. It's like if you watch Casino or Goodfellas or Scarface, there's a story arc that's the same for all drug traffickers. It shows the fun side, uh, the partying, and then it gets dark. The cops are after you. The competition are after you. People trying were to you kill you. Were you getting paranoid? Yeah, I was getting paranoid. I was moving around a lot. Were you still consuming lots of drugs? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I was consuming drugs till the SWAT team came. But I had, right. I had quit the trafficking a year before the SWAT team came. So talk me through now the moment when you walked into prison, remand prison. What was the context of that in terms of your sentence? So I ended up in Sheriff Joe Arpaio's notorious Maricopa County Jail. I was fighting my case there for 26 months. Sheriff Joe Arpaio prides himself on being America's toughest sheriff. He had two TV shows, Smile You're Under Arrest and Inmate Idol. It's also, Jesus Christ. It's also the jail with the highest rate of death in America. Banged Up Abroad, who did my documentary, Raving Arizona, they researched it and they found out that 52 people died in that jail over five years around the time I was there. It's completely gang controlled. So go in. It's designed for 15 people, but there's two tiers and they've got 45 guys in there. About a quarter white. These skinheads have got Hitler on them, SS lightning bolts, swastikas. So they go, hey, Wood. Wood's like white boy. It's like mate. They're like... Mm. We want a word with you. Get in that cell over there. You can't say no to these guys or they're just going to smash your head into the wall. So go into the cell. They close the door behind me. The biggest one gets in my face. What are your charges? My charges like conspiracy, crime syndicate, uh, continuous criminal enterprise. I don't understand what this stuff means. So I say I don't know what my charges mean. That is not a good answer. Now they've got me pinned against the wall about to attack me. What do you mean you don't know what your charges mean? Are you a chomo? Are you a chomo? I don't even know what chomo is at this point. Chomo's child molester. 
So in the end, I pulled out my charge sheet. They saw I was in for drugs. They saw my bail bond was $750,000 cash only. They loved that. They were like, God damn, who did you kill? Are you guys the mafia or what? Then they explain all the rules. Right. If someone calls you a punk, a bitch, or hits you, fight them on the spot or this whole gang will attack you. Must take a shower or they'll smash you for bad hygiene. Can't go make your friends with the guards, they'll smash you for snitching. So I started working out with a guy called Sniper, a Chicano, Mexican-American, La Victoria gang member. And the Nazis came over to me. I was like, hey, word, do you want a word? Go over to them. He's the sniper's like, oh, it's all good. Go on, go on, talk to them. Hey, Wood, look around the room. Do you see any of the other white boys working out with the other races? Look around the room. I'm like, no. We're going to give you a pass this time because you're a fresh fish. Don't let this wow. happen again, Wood. You've got a lot to learn. That's what it's like. It's really, it's wow. really intense. What were the conditions of the jail? So there was 45 of you in a room. And how long did you stay in that jail for at that time? First year in the Maricopa County, I was in medium security. Then they put me yeah. in max security. In max security, it was only two per cell. But you also had additional cellmates known as American cockroaches. As soon as the lights go out, they just flood the room. Now, you've got a choice. You could put a sheet around you like the mummy, leave a breathing hole. It does keep them off you, but it traps the heat to your body. This is the Sonoran Desert, almost 50 degrees in the summer. You are, because there's no air in there, it's like being cooked in a concrete oven. You are covered in bleeding and itching skin infections and bed sores. My leg at one point looked like I spilled battery acid on it. So you're, you're itchy from all this all the time, but because you're sweating constantly, outer layers of your skin turn soggy. So you get itchy, scratch yourself, clumps of your own skin detach under your nails, yeah. So you got this sheet around you to keep the roaches off, so itchy, you can't possibly sleep. You end up just throwing the sheet off and letting them crawl on you. Fortunately, they don't bite. They tickle your feet, your legs. To this day, if anyone tickles my hands, I flinch. They go on your face, mouth, nose. But the favorite place of all is going in your ears to eat your earwax. It's like honey to them. Oh, I had God. I had a neighbor in there who was asthmatic, wakes up one morning out of breath, grabs his inhaler, takes a blast, psh, shoots a live cockroach inside himself, oh, God. starts freaking out, saying he could feel it moving around, throws up, and somehow it won't even come out. In the daytime, there were so many, the prisoners were doing... Cockroach races, gambling on the winner. Oh, my God. I'm just trying to get my head around this. It's all so extreme. <laughs> and, and, and it's so funny because everything you're talking about is only things that most of us listening will have experienced on television, on prison documentaries, in films and that kind of thing. But I'm interested in you saying that you were, you know, using drugs for a big, long chunk, relentlessly, of your life. Then you went to prison. How did the combination of you coming off drugs for the first time in your adult life with being in this high, dangerous, kind of frightening situation, how did that take a toll on you? The fright was the slap around the face I needed to change. In the first year, I was still wild. If I'd have got released, I would have gone back to the party scene and the people of the night. Second year, they tell me I'm facing a maximum 200-year sentence. From the get-go, they slapped serious drug offender status on me, 25 to life. 
at 10 plus charges. If they stack them all, that's 100 years. Second year, they double my charges. They say if I don't sign a plea bargain, if I go to trial and lose, they're going to stack them to 200 plus years. So at that point, I'm thinking, I'm just going to spend the rest of my life behind bars. What kind of existence is, is this? I'm just going to slash my wrists and bleed out. I planned to do it after a guard did a security walk. But before I was going to do it, I wanted to say goodbye to my family and friends. I was allowed seven photos. Mom, dad, girlfriend, sister. And I'm looking at the photo of my mom and I'm thinking, she's going to get a call saying, your son's dead in a foreign prison. He just committed suicide. And to be honest, at that point, I started crying. And I couldn't remember the thought of putting my mum through that. And that's what made me not do it. So, next day, prisoner comes into my cell. He's got a steel rod in his leg. The screws are loose. He's in agony. He's got hepatitis C. Two-thirds of prisoners in there had hepatitis C from sharing dirty needles. He had syphilis and he had stomach cancer. He was in absolute agony every time he went on the toilet. And because of the stomach cancer was so advanced, he was going to die in there within a couple of years. I was thinking, right... I was feeling so sorry for myself. I was going to kill myself. Listen to this guy's story. Mm. And something in my brain made me want to start to help the people in there. Because I thought prisoners lock them up for away the key. Pedophiles, rapists, murderers. Because that's what the media reports on. They say this is what they are, extreme crimes, and how easy they got it. PlayStation's gourmet food. This is the trick the media pull on the public. On the peak of the war on drugs in America, the highest arrest category was weed possession not dealers not making excuses for what i did traffickers the average arrest in sheriff joe Power's jail was a black kid or a mexican kid with, with a, a joint of weed getting like a two to a five year sentence that's how they filled the private God. prisons more than half of my friends in prison were soldiers come back from wars ptsd didn't get any help got on street drugs ended up in prison because of that and prison is the biggest houser of the mentally ill so i started to read the legal paperwork for them I started to teach a class for the Mexicans so they could write home in Spanish. So, once I started to help other people, it put a break on my ego. When I was that English Sean persona, my ego was as big as the Grand Canyon. Being pushed to the brink of suicidal insanity, as rough as it was at that time, is what transformed me. Mm. And that's when I learned helping other people is good for the soul. And I was detached then from all of my material possessions. When you're facing 200 years, your million dollar house on the mountain is meaningless. Your swimming pool, who gives a shit? Plasma screen TV, sports cars, apartments, everything. Who cares? All I cared about was getting my life back. So getting sentenced to nine and a half years was one of the happiest days of my life. And when I finally lost everything, my girlfriend... In the second year, she couldn't take it anymore. And I started crying. And you can't let anyone see you cry in prison. I had to get on my bunk and pretend to read a book. But there came a point where everything I was attached to was gone. And I suddenly felt this bliss, like a mad monk in a cave must feel. I turned it into an educational opportunity for a lifetime. I read over a thousand books in just under six years. 
This became my real education. A lot of philosophy, psychology. Mm. In 2006, I read 268 books. And I told my sister that she's got a degree in classical literature. She said she could come nowhere near that. She's like, you lucky bugger. People have jobs, lives, families, responsibilities. <laughs> Nobody can do that. Well, I guess you've got a lot of time on your hands, you know. But tell me something. What did you learn about yourself in reading those books? Having that time to reflect, coming through the threshold of ego and pride, and coming out the other side of that and being able to have this different perspective on yourself, what did you learn about yourself and the reasons why you made your choices in the way that you did? Being forced to live with people with serious addiction issues for six years was the, my best education in psychology and human behaviour and addiction. And can I ask you, Sean, were you tempted to get obliterated in prison when you were at the lowest of your low? Like When I got arrested, I thought I was a wild and crazy party person, Mr. Cool Guy, get in there and 90% are injecting heroin and crystal meth, two-thirds hepsi, yellow jaundice skin, teeth rotting out. And I'm thinking, whoa... It was a very humbling experience for me. Do I want to keep going down that road and end up like these guys? The slow suicide, they knew they were killing themselves. Hep C chews your liver up and kills you. Or do I stop here, stay sober, fight my case, not cause any further legal problems by getting involved in drugs? That I was in so much trouble, I was fighting for my life. That is what I had to do. But also, a cloud lifted out of my head that I didn't know had been there for almost 15 years because as you're taking drugs the drugs are telling you this is brilliant this is cool and you surround yourself with equally idiotic people who are reinforcing each other's insane behavior but there's no one sober to put the brakes on so once that cloud lifted up my head i look back at the past decade plus and the first thing i thought was how on earth are you still alive the next thing i thought was you put people on this road of drug use. You created this horror in people's lives. I do yoga and meditation. I felt ashamed. So I decided, I resolved that when I got out, I would tell my story to people in the hope they wouldn't make my mistakes. And that's what I do now in the schools. But to keep going with your question then, yeah. you said, how did I transform my understanding of myself? Mm. I didn't consider myself a drug addict. My decision-making processes were so scrambled, all I thought I was doing was keeping the party going. When I took that first pill in Manchester, I told myself, I'm not a drug addict. I can have fun on the weekends. Get back to my studies on Monday. I will never get addicted. This will never impact my life. I was telling myself that until the SWAT team came May 16th, 2002. Mm -hmm. I'm a weekend warrior. Therapist says, Sean, when drugs impact your life, that means you've got addiction issues. What happened in your life, Sean? Where did drugs put you? Did they put you here today in prison? Did they affect your relationships? Did they affect your work? Light bulb goes off over my head. I've yeah. been addicted to drugs for all these years. But he said, when you quit it, it leaves a space inside you and you've got to put something in it. If you've got an adrenaline junkie personality, you've got to do something about that. Otherwise, the walls will be howling that it's party time. Yeah. So, karate, public speaking, there's all these things that young people can do. I tell them, look at all of your interests. What are the positive ones that will get you that adrenaline that will not lead to you ending up 
in some kind of jail situation where you're holding on very carefully to that soap in the shower. What I'm interested in is you as a person, as a child, you know, the type of kid that you were and how you end up getting to such extreme edges of danger in your life. I'm trying to make the equation work in my head. It's like anxious kid plus drugs equals recklessness. But then you're really smart. So you have the business acumen. So you've got this combination of kind of recklessness through being high, the business acumen through being able to deal but underneath all of that is danger. And you came from this really loving upbringing. So I'm, I'm interested in the idea of you being that close to danger and how you were able to exist in that way. People look at me and say, how can this be true? I'm the boy next door. It was Wildman that opened the door into that world for me during his first visit. That's how I made my relationships with G-Dog, the New Mexican Mafia. Right. It was Wildman who went down to Mexico and had us okay with the fellas in Mexico. But I'll give you a story, if you want, of when both worlds collided. My stockbroker world and the New Mexico Mafia world. I get a call to my stockbrokerage office from a guy called Fish, who's selling ecstasy for us out of the apartment complex. He says, you've got to come over here right now. I've got a situation. Get wild, man. I said, cool. I'll head to Wildman's right now. I'll come over. What's up? He says, I can't stay on the phone. You just need to come over. I go to Wildman. A wild man is collecting crack debts for this Colombian guy who's running a, a crack operation for one of the Colombian cartels, so I can't get him. I go over to Tempe, Arizona. Fish's girlfriend answers. She's got tears in her eyes. She just looks at me petrified, can't speak. I look at Fish. He looks really disturbed as well. What's up? He he's, can barely speak, but he says, you need to go and see this for yourself. And all of a sudden I hear... What was that? He goes, you need to go in the room and look. So I go into this room. I'll never forget this to this day. And it haunted me for quite a while. There is a guy with stately silver swept back her, stood over a group of Mexicans giving them orders. They've got cattle prods. On the floor is a naked hogtied man with a rock a Billy Quiff, they're electrocuting this guy. P is shooting out of his penis when this happens onto the floor. And he's gagged and stuff, but he's trying to scream and his eyes just look like, you know, he, he fears for his life, his life is over at any moment. So I look at the guy running this operation and my thoughts are, if I act alarmed, they're gonna think I'm a liability and take me out to the desert. So I got upon a smile here. I was on crystal meth at the time, which gave me this false bravery. I say to Fish, what's happened? Fish said, this guy came and bought some of your drugs. He bought some of their drugs and then he left. I went to go Circle K. He came back. He robbed all of your drugs. He robbed all of their drugs. I called you. I called them and they got here first. So I'm like, whoa. I look at the guy this with the silver hurt. I say, I can't find wild man. I've got to get back to the office. Looks like you guys have got the situation under control. And he just gives me a nod and a smile like, welcome to the crime family. And what happened to that guy was, 
they contacted his roommate. They said, you got to come up with 10 grand within 24 hours or he's a goner. And they came up with the 10 grand and he was released. So on that drive back to the office, that should have been my wake up call to get out of this. But it wasn't. I was so emotionally immature, even though it haunted me what I'd seen. I was having so much fun partying for days on end with Wildman, meeting all these characters of the night, joking we are living like in a movie. I couldn't break out of the lifestyle. The lifestyle becomes more addictive than the drugs and the money. It is the lifestyle. I've written several books about Escobar. He was worth billions. His brother Roberto said, let's retire on an island. He refused to because he said, I employ thousands of people. I put the president in power. You want me to kick back on some boring island sipping a, a margarita? It's the lifestyle is more addictive than anything else. Do you think exercising some really amateur psychology that your experiences as a child being pushed around and bullied have anything to do with that addiction of, of, of feeling powerful? I had to go and address my inner demons and that's exactly what they came from. I wouldn't just say I got bullied so I did these things. Of course. There's nothing the world hates more than a whiner. Of course. (laughs) And I would never make excuses for my crimes, but psychoanalyzing it years later, I had to go deep inside myself to address my inner demons. And the trauma, the social anxiety from those experiences, and then all of a sudden, you know, go from a little beat up nerd to running this big thing, getting praised all night long, you know, People coming up to me, thanking me for the XC, thanking me for the parties. The power in all this totally went to my head. And for people who are out there with addiction issues and families who've got family members with addiction issues, people have to hit rock bottom and there has to be introspection. Mine was forced upon me. An invisible hand picked me up, put me in the jail, forced me to go inside myself and address these root causes. And until then, I don't believe the person will stop. Because you, you address the root causes and you come up with a plan and, and, and the tools and lay down a mental apparatus, stoic philosophy in my case, Epictetus. You know, these are circuit breakers now in my head. We are not mm. bothered, Epictetus said, by the things around us, what people say. It's our thoughts that determine our reaction. So people can troll us and say the nastiest things in the world. And I've had a lot of that last year. But... Falling back on stoic philosophy, I can just tell myself, those people are having a bad day. I wonder what their lives are like and just mm. go on as my happy-go-lucky self, which I am now because the other thing the therapist was said, if you're afraid of something, you've got to confront your fear head on. So I was mm. forced for six years sober to live around people, some of whom were maniacs. When you get released back into the free world, it's a safe place <laughs> coming from that. So I had addressed my social anxiety head on for six years and now I do wake up with a smile on my face. Sean, if you could affect any change on your own life or or the world around you moving forwards, what would it be? The most pressing change. The mission of my YouTube channel now is to end the war on drugs, take all that resources from locking all those people up. I'm not talking about the Pablo Escobar's of the world. I'm talking all the lowest hanging fruit, the young people that go in with weed, the people with addiction issues, the soldiers, what a waste of taxpayers might take all that money from the war on drugs and go after the predators and give them longer sentences and society would be a safer place because living with people with addiction issues, heroin users, I learned they had nearly all been sexually molested as kids. And then they go on and they feel powerful with a gun. 
putting it in someone's face for the first time. And they rob people and kill people and all kinds of crazy things happen. And all that harm could be avoided if these kids were better protected. But these predators, they get after a couple of years, they get fancy lawyers like these priests and they have hundreds and hundreds of victims. So that is the mission on my YouTube channel. And that's why I presume the first question you asked is are you what you called a chomo? Because that's what everyone hates the most. Yeah, and I didn't understand why they attacked and killed chomos at that point because I was just freshly going in. But now I've got a true crime podcast. I've interviewed hundreds of prisoners and it all comes from childhood abuse and sexual abuse, seeing parents get murdered, being thrown away as kids, not having parents. You know, they need to fend themselves. And even the ones who get put in care homes, they get pimped out from the care homes. Yeah. It's terrible. So then the kids Awful. who have this trauma and don't know how to deal with it, what do they do? They self-medicate through street drugs. If they're women, predominantly they finance the street drugs through sex work. If they're men, they become drug dealers or they rob to, to finance the drugs. And then they've just got this massive crime after crime after crime, which wreaks havoc on society and costs the taxpayers millions. Well, Sean, I wish you the best of luck in your endeavours and the YouTube sounds brilliant. I've watched um, some of the stuff as well. It's really, really compelling. If anyone's listening, do go check out Sean Atwood's YouTube channel. We'll put all the links, obviously, to the podcast um, there Thanks. and to the YouTube channel and to the book, of course, as well. Um, and I thank you so much for your time today. You too. My dad used to send me tapes in the 90s of like John and the Pleased Women, Judge Jules. But then over the, yeah, year, yeah, over the yeah. years, he started to send me your stuff. So yeah. many nights I've driven around <laughs> listening to your stuff, love your beat and love your vibe. Oh, so thank it's, you, it's just a real extra special privilege to finally speak to you and, and be on here. Today. Oh, I'm so happy to hear that. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you, honey. Wow. What a roller coaster ride of a conversation from Sean. Sean is now banned from America for life. He lives in London and, as I said in the introduction to this, he leads a completely new life educating people. He has multiple books out, his own true crime podcast. There's a link in the show notes with all the details of that. And if there's issues that he discussed that you feel affected by, remember you can always talk to the Samaritans. They can be reached on 116123 and check the show notes for details outside the UK and Ireland. It was great to hear Sean's story. He's a real raconteur, isn't he? He's just really like well polished at telling those stories in the most entertaining way, but also very important that he is so self-aware and able to be, you know, brutally honest about his own weaknesses and his own uh, choices. Let us know what you thought of this episode as always. Let us know who you would like to hear from in the next series, please. I've started a list, but it's always good to get your input on that. Anyone who you know of or have come across with really, really incredible change stories I'd love to know about. Last week, we spoke to Dr. Stephen Taylor, who talked us through the psychology of pandemics. And it was really great to see how useful it was for you lot. Shout out to Hardeep, who listened to the podcast yesterday and said it gave me an amazing insight into the way I am feeling as I navigate my way through a year of lockdowns. I've also binged your back catalogue of podcasts. Love them all and it's hard to pick out a favourite. Looking forward to the next one. Thank you, Hardeep. Hello, Dina, 
who says, Annie, you're helping me with my feelings right now and to understand it's a process of emotions and it's normal and okay to feel them. Thank you. And hello, Stephen Harold, who says that was a really interesting program, Annie. Thank you for helping me to see a possible positive way out of lockdown. Yeah, I think Stephen might be referring to post-traumatic growth, which is just one of the many really interesting phrases and processes of thinking that we learned about from Stephen in that conversation. So go check it if you get a chance. Don't forget to rate, review and subscribe to the series it's so great to know that you are listening and that you're enjoying it it's been an absolute blast to bring this to you I've got so much out of it and I just can't wait to bring you the next series as I said I'm thinking of it now we'll bring you some brilliant conversations whenever we are back Mother Mother, the book, such a big deal for me, is coming out end of May. You can pre-order it right now and I really hope that you enjoy that if you get a chance to read it. This episode was produced by Louise Mason through Rethink Audio. See you for Series 4. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com